Oh, wow, I love that song. Love all these stories. There's more stories to come. Actually, there's more baptisms to come. Uh, we had, uh, we've got a number of people that want to. We just had scheduling conflicts, so stay tuned to this, this channel. We'll be coming back to it uh, for sure. Uh, this morning, uh, if, you're, if you're visiting with us, <clears throat> 30 people at least, but uh, more than that, I'm sure. Hey, uh, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to call you out, but it's great having you guys here. It's really good. Uh, you're way in the front row. I'll try not to spit on you or anything like that. Um, but uh, we're going through a series in Romans, and we've just finished chapter one, and, and Paul has gone through the latter half of Romans writing about the wrath of God as being revealed. And he addresses this y'all out there, like there's all these people, and you actually have to stop and go back and understand who Paul is writing to. Because Paul's writing a letter, and he's writing it to Christians in Rome. Now, how Christians got in Rome is important because you need to understand who's in Rome that he's writing. And it all starts back in Acts, which is like History of the Church, Volume 1, right? Um, where it talks about how the church was born and everything. And what happened was, uh, this idea of following Christ Jesus as the Messiah started among the Jews. It was predominantly a Jewish movement that then rapidly brought in the Gentiles, but it started in Jerusalem, and what happened is these, these Jewish people were saying, hey, wait a minute, this is the Messiah. Jesus really is the Messiah, and they started to become followers of Christ. And the religious leaders, having just killed Jesus, were pretty serious about him not being the Messiah, were pretty upset, pretty frustrated, pretty angry. And so this, this group of people starts to swell of saying, you know, they're saying, hey, Jesus is the Messiah, and the religious leaders get so upset, they just unleash this wave of persecution, which is really like a bad idea, because then Christianity spread. Everybody fled Jerusalem, and they all took this understanding of who Jesus was with them. And because most of them were Jews, wherever they fled, they ended up in a synagogue because they didn't stop being a Jew. They simply were saying, hey, wait a minute, this is the Messiah we've all been waiting for. So they naturally went to the synagogue to talk about Jesus and to spread the good news about Jesus. So in Rome, you have a large con a contingent of Jewish Christians Messianic Jews is often, you know, a term that's used where they, they believe in the Messiah. You also have a large contingent of Gentile Christians. But it's important to understand that because of what Paul does in chapter 2. So in chapter 1, Paul's writing and he's saying, look, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven because people suppress the truth about the existence of God. It's plain in the universe, uh, this cosmological argument where you can look at the cosmos, study get knowledge of the cosmos, and then determine that there is a God out there. Uh, and so he's saying, hey, look, they suppress the truth. Everyone is under the wrath of God or is facing the wrath of God. But it's interesting because in chapter 2, Paul starts off with, you therefore. And all of a sudden he switches gears. At first it's this impersonal they or the, everyone, and now it's this personal pronoun you. You, therefore. And you, you, we don't really understand who the you is until you read through chapter 2 and you get to about verse 17 and then he just really just spells it out. He kind of hints that it's the Jews, but he really nails it in verse 17. So we know the you in verse 1 is the Jews. And what's interesting is he goes on to, to write this, man, this intense thing. And 
and the reason he does is because he's a Jew. And he knows what a Jew is thinking. Because he is one. He's anticipating what's going through their minds as he finishes up this chapter one, or you know, it's, he didn't write chapter one, we put those in later, but we'd say chapter one, and what they're thinking is, oh, that's not me. That's not me at all. I'm, I'm, boy, I'm glad I'm not that. Those people are really messed up. Oh, man, it, I'm, Paul needs to call them out. You go get them, Paul. You take care of them. And so Paul, anticipating that line of thought, Starts chapter 2 when he says, You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, because at whatever point you are judging the other, you do the same things. Now we know that those, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man or woman, do the same things, Do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? He comes at him, and and he's calling out this mindset that says, because we're the people of God, because we're Jews, we get a free pass. And somehow the culture in Israel, the, the, this spiritual culture had changed to a religious culture, not a spiritual one, a religious one, and they exchanged all kinds of things. And so they were actually thinking in the culture of the time the spiritual leaders let grow and manifest was we're immune to the wrath of God because we've got the golden ticket. We're the Jews, the Israelites, the people of God. And it's an absolute shocker. Here is a Jew who believes in the Messiah, and he's been doing this for 20 years, right? He's seen it, heard it, done it all, and he just goes right to it. He's not messing around after 20 years. He knows what they're thinking. He goes, you do the same things. You guys are so great at pointing out all the sinners and all their mess, but I'm telling you right now, it takes one to know one. You're just as messed up in a desperate situation of facing God's wrath as they are. And what's interesting is Paul references God's kindness. And, you know, the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience. And it's interesting because when somebody normally experiences the the kindness of God, the normal response is to say, thank you, I'll change. Thank you, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'll, I'll repent, I need forgiveness. And what they did when they experienced the kindness of God that was supposed to lead them to repentance, they saw it more, they flipped it upside down and say, oh, God still likes us, even after all we're done, we're good, don't have to change, because we've got the golden ticket. They twisted it all around, and they used God's kindness and his patience, not realizing that it's an opportunity to confess and to be broken 
and they used it as an opportunity to hide. One of the famous stories of this is, is King David, right? King David commits adultery, then kills the husband of the, the wife that he committed adultery with and hides it, buries it, and nothing happens. You think he gets away with it, and then God sends this prophet, Nathan, and he tells him this story about this, you know, this rich guy who had all these sheep, and yet he wanted to throw a party, and so he went and took forcibly the sheep from this poor man, his only sheep. And, and he had that for the barbecue, and, and he's telling this thing to David, and David just goes, what? That man should die for what he did. And Nathan goes, it takes one to know one. See, God gave David time, kindness, patience, repent, repent, confess, and David flipped it and said, I'm okay. I got away with it. Look at that. Until he was confronted, and then David repented. Paul goes on to explain why they were facing God's wrath. It wasn't just that they were doing the same things. He goes on in verse 5, and he says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart. This last week, I, I was studying, doing a word study on stubbornness, and I looked it up in the Greek, and it's amazing because it's the same thing in English. All you get is this picture. And I, I, they just said, see this. See the mule. That's worth a thousand words right there, right? What is stubbornness? That's stubbornness. Ears back. Dug in. You ain't moving me. Now, the problem with all metaphors is God is not that small. And uh, there's a whole thing there where (laughs) God could take us by the bridle and just kind of swing us around. Wee! Right? I mean, there's that whole thing where it doesn't fall. It doesn't, doesn't work. But... As far as a stubborn mule, that does work. And he says, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, which is interesting, repentance is directional. It's about direction. Unrepentant, it means you're going this direction. God says, stop, and and we don't stop the direction. We're unrepentant. But repentance means we're not stubborn and we're willing to be led and go the direction that God leads us towards confession, towards this life for him. I think that's interesting. It's not necessarily all that is about the sin. It's also about the stubbornness. And it's also about that unrepentant spirit. And it's a picture of their spiritual condition. Stubborn. Unrepentant. not only did they refuse to stop the way they were living, they refused to acknowledge God's holiness, which is so interesting, the, the righteousness. The, they, they wouldn't do any of that. And all they would do was look at others and just say, man, I am so glad I'm not as messed up as them. Now, as he says this, he comes against judging uh, pretty harshly. 
And I just want to say real quickly, there's, there's two types of judging. There's this type of judging, which is really bad, not good. But there's also a good type of judging that has a, a better word like discernment attached to it, where God says, hey, look, I want you to discern, judge the behavior, especially within the church. Exercise discipline, hold each other accountable, rebuke, exhort. That requires good kind of judgment, not bad kind of judgment, but good kind of judgment, discernment. And so you can't just throw it all out and say, oh yeah, nobody's to judge ever. It's like, well, no, it's more complex than that. And it requires maturity and it requires balance of understanding. But what he doesn't like is, is that type of judgment where you're standing in, in your stinking pile of sin and it's all covered all over you and me. And, and meanwhile, we're, we're pointing out to everyone else. I mean, he uses the word, the log in your eye. Meanwhile, you're, you're like, you know, pointing out this little tiny gnat in somebody else's eye. So God goes on to make it clear through Paul about this judgment that is awaiting those who live this way. He's talking to the Jews. The golden ticket's not going to help you. And he goes on to explain this idea that there's actually a day of wrath. So he starts off, and you know, in that verse he says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepented heart, you are storing up for yourselves wrath for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Righteous judgment. For God will give every person according to what he has done. To those who are persistent in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, evil there'll be wrath and anger. There'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. Actually, I skipped some. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. Key thing. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. For God does not show favoritism. Now, what's interesting is Paul's saying the wrath of God is being revealed in chapter 1, but now he's saying, actually, there's a day of wrath coming. And that day of wrath is, is the last day, right? It's the day when God's wrath will finally be dispensed. His judgment will come, and, and that's the end. There's nothing after it. And on that day, each of us will give an account. There's like this, it's kind of sobering. There's some kind of accounting system in heaven where he knows our good deeds and he knows our bad deeds. And we will face his wrath for what has been evil and receive glory, honor, and peace for what is good. What's interesting about this is he says a couple things here, and one of them is he goes on to say, my judgment is fair. He doesn't do the favoritism like because they're Israelites, they get off and they get the golden ticket. He says it's fair. There's no special treatment. It's just based on what we've done, either good or bad, and he sets the standards, this righteous standard for his judgment. And there's two things about these, these few verses that are confusing. One is, he says he doesn't show favoritism, but twice he says the Jews go first and the Gentiles. The Jews go first and the Gentiles. And you're thinking, well, if, it, if you're not a God who shows favoritism, why did you just say twice that the Jews go first and, and the Gentiles go second? Because that sounds like favoritism. Somebody's more favorite than the other. 
somebody gets to go first. I know in my family I have a couple kids, I won't reference them, but uh, <laughs> I got rules, I can't reference them. But um, if you as a parent hypothetically had children and you let one go first before the other child went every time, would that be called favoritism? Yeah, well, that's what it feels like here. What Paul's saying here is that the favoritism has to do with judgment. It's all predicated on how God judges. And it's a righteous standard, meaning the Jews get the same righteous standard held to them as the Gentiles do. That's what that favoritism is about. You, you don't get out of this, Jews. You get the same thing the Gentiles do. Now, there is such a thing as God choosing Israel as this nation, a chosen nation. And God makes no qualms about that. He does that, and God can do that. But when it comes to judgment, everybody gets the same treatment. There is no difference. The other problem within this is it feels like as you read through this, and it kind of hints at this, like you can actually, by your works, have eternal life. I mean, if you persist in doing good, which how many people talk about that? I'm just trying to do good. I'm trying to get my good to outweigh my bad. And it feels like that as you read through this. It feels like, ah, if you just persist in doing good, you will get glory, honor, and immortality. And in theory, this is true. But you have to read all the way through chapter 2 and all the way into chapter 3 before you hear Paul's ultimate conclusion about this. But theoretically, before Adam and Eve fell, we were doing nothing but good deeds and everyone would stay in God's presence. After the fall, theoretically it's possible, but in reality it's not because we're all born with the sin nature. And so the spoiler alert of chapter 3 is Paul concludes there's no one good. No one meets the standard. So don't want to go into chapter 3 too much, but just so you know, if you're reading that and it feels that way, you got to stay tuned to the rest of the, the theme or the, the idea that Paul's developing right here. As he goes on, it's interesting, he, he moves out of that, and he's been kind of generic in terms of this idea of judgment and the standard of it. He just says righteousness. But it, as we go into verse 12, Paul starts to narrow very quickly his understanding of what that standard is. See if you can pick it up, right? For all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will also be judged by the... You're picking it up. It's pretty obvious, right? For it is not those who hear the... It's not those who hear the... Are we getting it on this side? You guys got it back there? <laughs> right there. I feel it, Dan. We got it. For it is not those who hear the... There we go. Who, will, who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the... Who will be declared righteous. For indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the... Do by nature things required by the... They are a... For themselves, since they show that the requirements of the law... Oh, since the requirements of the are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, their thoughts now accusing, now defending them. And this will take place on the day when God will judge men and women's secrets 
through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. This word law explodes on the scene. And all of a sudden, we now have a definition of what the standard is that applies to everyone. It's the law. And what is that law? It becomes real critical. As you read through the rest of Romans, it becomes very clear. Paul is talking about the moral law of God. Back Moses, right? Ten commandments, that. Now, at that time at Mount Sinai, God gave the moral law, he gave ceremonial law, and he gave civil laws. When Christ came, the civil laws and the ceremonial laws faded away for God's people because it was a new covenant. But the moral law of God never stopped because it's part of who he is. It's an eternal moral law. And so that's the standard that all will be judged by, this moral law of God. Eleven times in five verses, he says this. And what is that moral law? Well, it's the Ten Commandments, but you just heard actually Adam quote Jesus who summarized the moral law by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law hangs on these two commands. And every person will be judged by this law. What's interesting as you go through this is Paul starts to say a couple things. Those who don't have not, don't have that moral law, have never seen it, will not be judged by it. We'll be judged apart from it, but those who do have it will be judged by it. And you're thinking, huh? Well, how does that standard work then? If they get the moral law and these people don't have the moral law, it creates a problem feels like a double standard. And Paul, anticipating that thinking, goes on to say, hey, look, there is another thing about God you need to know. People can discern the presence of God because there is a natural moral law embedded into the fabric of the souls of every person who's ever lived. So there's a cosmological argument, meaning look at the cosmos and you see the existence of God. There's also this natural law argument, which means look around you and why is it that you can go anywhere on this planet, any continent, and everybody knows that murder is wrong. And everybody knows, right, that stealing is wrong. And everybody knows that you go down the list of the Ten Commandments, right? And, and there's this knowing. People know. And that everybody also knows that love is powerful. How do they know that? Because it's a natural law woven into the souls of everyone. And he says, the Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature things required by the law. They are a law for themselves and they don't have it. Since they show the requirements of the law are written in their hearts. It's innate. It's built in. And, and on that judgment day, that day of wrath, God will judge the secret places of every heart, the places where we know that we have sinned because we have this book. And those people who never had this book will know that they've done wrong, even though they never read a word out of this because they knew it intuitively in here. Their conscience is bearing witness, their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them.
Some people would say, well, what do you do then with those who never hear? How do they move just beyond knowing that, okay, there's a right and wrong to God and worshiping him? And there's a story. Uh, God will move heaven and earth for someone who wants to worship him. He will. He gave somebody a vision. A king is actually in Iran. Gave him a, a vision. And this king had it interpreted, and he began to worship God. This is a pagan king. And he ends up worshiping God. There's another guy, Ethiopian. little distance from Egypt. I got knocked for where I put Ethiopia on Africa, but I know it's above Somalia, and it's way south of Egypt, so it's somewhere in there on the, on the east coast a long ways away from Israel. And there's some Ethiopian guy who all of us, I don't know how he got the word. He's trying to understand Isaiah. And God literally teleports one of his people to this guy. I mean, that's the only way I would describe it. Whisked him away. Like, how does that happen? I've never been whisked. Um, I don't know if you have either. It just doesn't happen normally. It's miraculous. And God moves heaven and earth to people who are looking to worship him. And he brings this guy to this Ethiopian and says, hey, this is what it means. And the guy's like, I want to do it. Let's, I want to follow Christ. And, and Philip says, well, let's baptize you right here. Fire it up. Go for it. And there's stories after stories that we're hearing, even in our day, where God is giving visions and giving dreams to people and sending them on these journeys to find him. I was just reading a book, um, The Insanity of God, and there's this story of this guy out in the middle of Africa. Like, he has, he's never seen this. He's never heard of this. And he gets this vision that there is a God, and he follows this vision, and he walks by foot, right? He travels by foot. And I can't remember, it was like two weeks walking by foot or two months. Uh, the, the pastoral exaggeration side of me wants to say it was two years of walking. But uh, I don't know whether it was two weeks or two months. But he walks to find out, and, and he got this vision to go to this city, and you'll find this man. And he had this picture in his mind. And he goes to a city he's never been to, and he, he actually finds this guy at the specific location who, guess what, is a Christian. And the guy says, look, I've had this vision about God. Can you tell me about him? And this guy explains who Jesus was, and he ends up following him and bringing Christ back to his village. God will move heaven and earth for somebody who is wanting to worship him. He will. That's what he does for lost people. He left heaven. Do we need a greater example of how much he wants people to know him? But coming back to this, this passage, and it, it's, it's towards Jews, but I think it relates to us, for many of us who maybe grew up in a Christian culture, grew up going to church, grew up in America, which has been blessed with a foundation where we had these founding men and women weave Christ and the, and the gospel and the word into our nation. And we've been blessed as a nation, and yet there is this sense and theme of entitlement that happens in the American church because we're the American church and God blesses America. And, and, and what ends up happening, it breeds a culture and can breed a culture where we think we got the golden ticket because we're American and we're Christian, of course. 
I'm a Christian. And yet, the picture of our spirit is, is that. Stubborn and unrepentant, even though we would claim the name of God. And I don't know where you are right now, but is this a picture of your heart? And I'm, I'm not looking at anybody. I'm just going to look down. Keeping this clean. This is just between you and Jesus. But is this a picture of your spirit right now? Are you stubbornly refusing to admit you're wrong, you're doing your own thing, you're going your own way, you're making your own choices, and, and Christ is saying it's time to turn and repent and go a different direction, and you just have sat down, I ain't doing that. And, and I wonder, is it because you know if you turn around, it is going to throw a grenade in your life? Because you're going to have to come clean on stuff and you're going to have to admit you're wrong to God and even to yourself. And that's the difficult, right? You kill that pride. But it's not only that. Other people may find out what you have to confess and you may have to go ask forgiveness and I don't know what the reason is. There's a day that we all will face God's wrath. And, and Paul's concerned. He's very concerned for his brothers and sisters because they, they just keep going down and they don't realize that, no, it, it is coming and you can't hide from it. It's an equal standard. Everybody gets held to it. So my encouragement this morning, I know there is quite a few stories here of people who have repented. People who have been broken. People who have let God lead them back towards himself in a different direction and made courageous moves of confession and surrender. Um, there's stories all over this church. It's possible to do and it's possible to be forgiven and it's possible for God to restore a life. And if God is moving in your heart today and, and you need, you know it's you, um, he may be calling you up here for prayer afterwards 